0: There are some people you meet in life that were born to do what they do. There's a sense of passion for their craft that never leaves them. In this episode, my friend Arnold Williams talks about that kind of passion in his life. A born designer with an insatiable desire to illustrate and create beautiful clothes
1: it's such an integral part of design you know because i feel you should have the same amount of love for the illustration as you do for the finished product one doesn't come without the other in my in my world anyway
0: i'm anthony stoker i design shoes write letters and this is the view from a shoe where we explore the creative journey a metaphorical walk one guest at a time Arnold is an incredibly experienced womenswear designer having worked alongside the likes of Gianni Versace in Milan and Narciso Rodriguez at Loewe in Madrid. We talk about his different experiences within the various design houses, the soulless and the sublime elements to fashion and the continual thread of his belief in the role of illustration. I began the conversation by asking Arnold about his earliest memory of shoes.
1: There was this pair of sneakers, and I actually really loved them. But it was one of those sneakers that it wasn't a crossover sneaker. Now, I was, a very, I was very active, sports-wise. I think a few weeks after, that, after I bought this pair of sneakers, I had a, I had a race in Gates, the Gateshead Stadium. I was doing 100 meters, I used to run for my, for my school. I don't know where I would have placed, but I'm sure I would have placed probably, let's say, worst case scenario, midfield. As a kid, you have a pair of new sneakers, God's gift. You wanna wear it at every single opportunity. New sneakers, that was what I had to wear. Now, there was zero flexibility to this damn thing. <laughs> so I don't know what I was thinking. Come race day, we're on the blocks, the gun goes off, I'm like running as fast as I could possibly go. And literally, I see the entire field in front of me and just advancing because the sneakers would just take me nowhere. And I came last. And it's kind of funny that I remember that story right now because those sneakers were very reminiscent of what the kids are wearing today. Chunky, zero flexibility. But I love them. If I could really remember what those sneakers looked like, I would literally be sketching them and trying to have them made.
0: Do you remember those Jean-Paul Gaultier trainers?
1: Oh, wow. It wasn't as extreme, (laughs) but it was in that world. And I know I had a pair and you had a pair.
0: I think I only ever wore them once.
1: I think I only wore mine a couple of times. But at least, you know, like, I had an excuse because, like, you know, I'm a little bit vertically challenged, you know, however... They were pretty damn cool. I also had a pair of boots. They were black leather boots. They were from Shelly's.
0: They were like ankle boots that went kind of...
1: Exactly, with a, with a pla- like stacked platform. There must have been about from, you know, about three inches, let's say. And actually those, I swear if I had those right now, I'd wear them. Because what they were really, they were literally creepers, but a little like karma version of creepers, but boots. And those, oh my God, those are like amazing. Yeah, got those. Remember, got those from Shelleys. Did you remember we used to go to Shelleys all the time? Whenever we went to London, Shelleys and Red or Dead.
0: When did you move down from Newcastle to Worthing?
1: So I moved from Newcastle to Crawley to to West Sussex. 85. 85. That's
0: kind of middle. Oh, just the end of end of school time then.
1: Yeah, in third year. Yeah. So uh, no, I did my third year in Newcastle and then fourth year in, uh, in, in Crawley and then finished school in Crawley. So I was, I, was, I was able to leave my Gateshead nightmare behind. That's what I was running away from.
0: <laughs> in those terrible trainers.
1: Oh, hey, what was terrible then is great now.
0: So what was the, what was the second story that you, th- you thought of?
1: Well the second story, I was a, bit, I was a lot younger. This is when uh, we lived in West Africa. I was actually reminded of this recently. I used to give things away all the time to people that were a little less fortunate. If someone asked me for something, I'd give them. And I used to get, I, I, I think I'd would give, give my shoes away a bunch of times. So they'll come and pick me up, and I'll be shoeless, and they'll be like, <laughs> and they would be like, "Oh, what happened to your shoes?" I be like, "Oh, so and so needed it, so I gave it to." <laughs> but then an even earlier story. This is when, again, when we lived in uh, in Malawi. This is when I was like a wee wee wee, I was a little little kid.
0: One sec, one sec, sorry. In all the years I've known you, wh- where were you born?
1: In, in uh, near, near Luton, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a village called Silso. It's in uh, Amptail in Bedfordshire. So I would uh, not get out of bed. I had, I had this habit of falling asleep. Not in my bed. So I had to be carried to bed. The deal breaker was, when I woke up in the morning, my shoes, my house shoes had to be, I had to step into my shoes. I would not get out of bed. And it was was non-negotiable.
0: What was it about that? You just wanted to not waste time looking for them? or?
1: Well, it was just one of those things where that was where it was supposed to be. Now, whether I put it there or someone else did it but that's where when you wake there's certain things there's certain routines that you have that is something it wasn't it wasn't normal if it wasn't there it would which is kind of interesting because as a kid when you think about that particular aspect of one's routine was so important that you felt the foresight to know that maybe if that was different then it will affect the rest of your entire day. Even though you didn't you. Put it, you didn't think of it in that sense, but I'm sure there was an element of that.
0: You needed your routine.
1: It was just one of those things. And, but it was actually one of my first, first memories. Yeah, I, I, it must have been nursery. I was in nursery. I'd always remember because I, I think I'd be shouting for Mr. George because we had a housekeeper called Mr. George. I think Mr. George would always make sure that was always there for me to step into. The housekeeper was just a housekeeper that came with a job. It wasn't like my, uh, it came with my dad's job.
0: <laughs> not with your job as a three-year-old.
1: Exactly. Well, no, just just to uh, paint the picture of like I'm not someone of uh, you know like some spoilt little rotten mon- monster. You're not of immense wealth. Exactly. If I'm of zero wealth. What did your dad
0: do back then? Then
1: oh, he's a, he's a, he's an environmental engineer. Majored in agriculture engineering. So, which is why we lived in, you know, like, lots of different places. Hence, which is why I, grew, I was born where I was born. He transitioned into, into environmental, which is what, again, brought us to Newcastle, because he was a resident lecturer, stroke, doing his research and PhD at Newcastle University.
0: I guess he was quite at the forefront of being aware of the environment.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. But, you know, I think I think there, there was so many, you know, scientists who were, you know, into it long before... It became a topical thing. Now they they had the impossible task of like convincing uh, governments and businesses to adopt certain things. But again, they were the far, far, not necessarily forefront because there were people who were way into it way before them. You know, they were also pretty instrumental in awareness.
0: Did you grow up with a lot of that conversation around you then, at the, like the dinner table, or
1: yes and no, the, um, the only reason why. I was probably a little bit more... And anyway, and I didn't really understand it fully because I would go with my dad a lot when he was doing research because my dad's research was... Uh, his, his PhD was based on water irrigation. And I would also... I would go, always go with him to the field, you know, like on weekends and stuff when he'd go... Because obviously, they would, uh, it was all about data... You know, he'd collect data. And he had... Uh, I remember he had uh, three or four uh, ZX... Spectrum, remember those? The small, the, well, the first laptops, in a way.
0: Yeah, but they, they were only a keyboard, weren't they? They weren't.
1: But anyway, like the small, the black ones, because there was a Commodore. Then there was the ZX, the black ones, which was like a little bit more portable. But I always remember that was he, you know. So basically, you would have those set up. In, those set in the field. We'd go, you know, collect data, and then we'd come. To, you know, sometimes I'd go to the lab with him at uh, in Newcastle University. Remember the printer people with the holes in the, on the on, on the sides, the ones that fold and concertina. I'd never forget that. It was such a noisy environment, and <laughs> the funny the funny thing about it was like most like especially when you go on the Saturday when like football matches were on, and literally it's right next to the stadium. You know, so you would hear like the noise also, and it was just, it was it was inter- yeah, interesting times when I always remember being and not really having that much understanding of the whole environmental you know like you know conversation
0: What about creativity like when did you first feel like you were gonna be going in a a creative direction and it even was it even about clothes? when you first realized it was creative direction or was it a different kind of creativity at the time?
1: I've always done art you know as a kid I hated toys I like to make my own toys don't buy me a matchbox card buy me nothing just get me a bit of like uh cardstock paper glue sellotape pens I didn't love painting as such I loved making stuff like creating stuff and I literally I didn't like Lego, didn't like Meccano, like nothing like that. I just liked to make my own versions of all of them. <laughs> you know, When uh, friends came over to play, don't bring, your, don't bring your toys. You play with the world that I've created. And they loved it. They absolutely loved it because it was, it was one of those things where you could make anything into, ev- you can make nothing into everything. You can make whatever you, if you could think it, you could create it. You'd create these like paper figures that had a car. So you'd create a car. That person needed to wear clothes. So you'd make like clothes for the person. So it was like one of these, it was like an endless thing. They needed a house. In the house, they needed like furniture. They had to go a place where they shopped. They had to go to a store. I think about now and literally it was like a department store while you were shopping, you can get your car repaired. And, and the car repair thing, I understood what that, where that came from because that was something that was very present in my life. My dad loves tinkering, you know, and he got to help him tinker.
0: You're kind of building up your... A brand. Well, a brand, but also you, you were really thinking about your customer profile as well.
1: Absolutely.
0: So what what age was this? Eight, seven, eight...
1: Till probably I think that phase went on until about like I was about 11, 12-ish, you know. The thing took on a life of its own because it just got, it didn't get smaller; it just got bigger, take over the entire veranda, you know.
0: So so on, on your veranda was like your mini Selfridges.
1: Exactly. In my, in my mind now I think about it as an adult, I think probably the most impressive thing about that was the fact that everything was scaled, which I thought was pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, and, and also in the sense that getting that proportion right of the skirt to the body of the dress, of the, of the sleeve length, getting all these proportions to kind of work well
1: together. Right.
0: That's kind of like where the early stages of that understanding of proportion. and
1: It's that balance between, it's that, it's that dance, you know? It's that perfect coordination that you, you build, you know? It's like, But it kind like of starts from one thing. It starts off with a form, with a mannequin, the little mannequin, which was... The person that one created and then everything was built around that mannequin so yeah it does there is a relationship with what I ended up doing in later life in a way you know I never ever thought I never even thought about it like that until this particular moment
0: what made you want to go to Worthing what was it about Worthing in terms of the college not in terms of
1: yeah, the the easiest thing to say, I think, is proximity, but it actually had nothing to do with proximity. It was just the fact that I felt they offered, they just had everything there. You know, it was just like, it was just one of those colleges that was a no brainer. They had everything and more. The pedigree of students that had previously been there, you know, they all go on to do, you know, great things, which is down to the, the guidance that they get from there. And, you know, so I did, because I didn't do art O level. It was just something that I did not. It was something that I did that you know, for me was fun. I never would have thought I'd have a career in art. If anything, I thought I would, it would be something maybe sort of like engineering ish. I'm still, you know, to this day, I'm obsessed with like bridges. I just, I love, love, love bridges. <laughs> they fascinate me.
0: Out, out of interest, which, which is your favorite bridge?
1: For a while, I love the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. Just the idea of the bridge that goes into a tunnel. Where's that? It's just around the corner here. It's in Virginia. <laughs> and a bridge that's, fa- that's always fascinated me. and I know there's like, that was the, uh, the bridge in, uh, from Shanghai to Nimba, which is like a 35 mile. It's, uh, it's just the most surreal thing that you know, this bridge for like 35 miles. and just like. But then I saw a couple of days ago a bridge. And I keep meaning to Google it because I only discovered it a couple of days ago. It was a bridge in Sao Paulo. In Brazil. And it's almost like two semicircles that intertwine. What's the name of the guy that built the bridge in Bilbao? Calatrava. It's almost like, it's like Calatrava. And who knows? He might have built the, one, the, the the bridge in Sao Paulo. Brazil is literally number two now on my list. It's still, still Tokyo. Tokyo was number one.
0: What is it about Tokyo?
1: It's the whole microcosm of all the fashion cultures that just seem to coexist like seamlessly the level of creativity the level of uh commitment to whatever tribe they associate they, they identify with in terms of like the fashion element of it they could be rockabilly's. that's who they are they could be punks that's who they are they could be like you name it they could be into hip-hop it's just marvelous you know it's it's fashion in its purest purest form and the lack of inhibition to just be they you know they, they just they just are who they are when they find, when they, once they find where they want to be who they want to be what they want to be
0: yeah they, they they definitely um immerse themselves in uh the look and the feel that they that they're interested in
1: it's just remarkable. And I think the, the thing that I love, it's just, there's a level of commitment that is just so, ironically, I, I feel, I, I, I sense and I, I see aspects of that, I think, in most places now. You know, I see that aspects of that here in America, you know, in LA. You, know, you see all these little silos, you know, these little kids, you know, have their little things that they identify with and they're very committed to it. Not to the extent that they do in Japan, but I feel there's a commitment and that way of life seems to be overspilling into other other countries, which I think is like a beautiful thing, you know, because I feel that is the future.
0: Yeah, I think more, more local, more local kind of uh, ingredients and flavors are are springing up rather than it being global brands where right. you get the same thing whether you're on the high street in London versus LA versus Tokyo versus Milan, etc., And it all, all becomes a bit bland, which, which is kind of what it's felt like, I don't know, last fif- 15 years.
1: I'd even go back more. It's just, yeah. There's a soulless element to what fashions become. And I think in a way we're all contributors. We've all contributed to it. You know, it doesn't matter what side of creativity you're on in fashion we've all in a really weird way contributed to it, you know, willingly or unwillingly, you know, we have, you know, because the end of the day we've, I, I, you know, I've done some amazing things, but I'm not going to lie. Well, I've, I've done, you know, like things that I am glad my name's not on the door. You know, I'm glad no one identified. I've, I've worked for companies, which I'll never put on my CV. So
0: you've, you've, you feel like the, um, like the soul is coming back into fashion then because of the kind of maybe disintegration of the kind of globalness of it.
1: Absolutely. Cause I think we've, we took it. It's just, it was taken to its limits and I feel now it's going to start, it's, it's, it's creeping back because there's going to be a lot more uh, creative and intellectual honesty to, to product. And I feel that's where we are, but it had to get taken to where it had, where, where it went for it to be, you know, dialled back and come back in its truest form. Things are going to become more local. Things are going to become, you know, the whole like sustainability conversation uh, comes into it. I don't necessarily know how that how that works fully yet because I sort of like struggle with it, you know, because I'm sort of like I don't understand how like a young brand that has no that has no funding, no money how they can fully immerse themselves in that world and able to survive you know so that's the thing you know i i i I, i'm looking for answers there as well
0: maybe it's a um it's a different version of that world and because the newer younger brands haven't yet got to the point where they're bringing in a certain amount of money right that they're not they're not become tied to it yet so they're not having to sustain that level, and actually can right can stay more local and can stay more nimble and more innovative.
1: Right, but but you know I think I think local yes, but I think once it comes to the sustainability aspect part of it, where it becomes you know where we're in an industry where the customers also get more savvy and people are sort of like very conscious now of the power of their dollar, the power of their money they spend it on causes that they believe in. You know, because class, I'm, I'm, currently working, I'm currently working on T-shirts, for instance, at the moment. And I'm inquiring on, uh, I've been making inquiries and trying to find ways of getting what I'm just gonna describe as clean teas. And the price differential is, it's mind boggling. It's really become a money story A bigger company, a company that can afford it, can afford to use the quality that the customer dictates. Where does that leave younger, emerging brands with no funding but a voice and a vision? And you know, and and my 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 answer, my what I'm voicing out is just it's a question rather than because I'm I'm learning I'm learning about it myself. I'm trying to understand it myself, you know, because it's like. I don't
0: know. Well, I think it's about putting your voice out there anyway. Absolutely. You know, like this podcast, it's only the second one I've done. So the the number of people that are going to listen to it will be very few. You know, from zero, you've got to take the first step and have those conversations and and spread the word as slowly as, as it may be. I constantly hear about more and more brands that are trying to do what we 're talking about right you know they've been doing it for, for years, probably probably with a very small tribe of people that have been following them and supporting them, but drip by drip step by step it's be- it's become a little bit bigger and bigger and it will evolve there's so many people that have the appetite for this way of thinking. Those minds will come together more, and therefore it will be able to. Uh, whether it's through joint projects, collaborations, or, you know, a manufacturer with a designer to help the process move along, kind of thing. And it it'll it will evolve. I'm, I'm positive minded.
1: Evolve it will, you know. And it's just one of the things where it is it, it is the future, and it will. It's not going to. Ch- it's not going to go back. <laughs> There's no that 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 boat sailed, and you know. So it's just a question of like one has it will we'll all have to adapt and adopt the new way of of thinking.
0: Or make the new way of thinking.
1: Absolutely. And that is what creativity is. You know, at the end of the day, it's like you make lemonade out of any goddamn fruit you've given.
0: Going back to college days, because I know, you know, we obviously went to Maidenhead together and then we moved to London at the same time. that's when you went to the Royal. I wondered what you expected from the Royal. And did you get what you expected from it?
1: Yes and no. I got what I wanted in terms of it was a program that it's that perfect home to be rounded off, to be polished and make you industry ready. I felt I did get the polish that I needed, I did get the confidence that one also needs, because it's also a very, very important aspect of what we do. In fact, confidence is probably one of the most important parts of it. You don't really get taught to the Royal, because I, don't, I didn't really particularly learn anything I wouldn't have learned elsewhere. And I say that from a standpoint of a creative. We are our teachers. We teach ourselves. One thing that uh, I, always t- I took away from that John Miles always used to say was, or John Miles' mantra was, learning to design is learning to think. And ultimately, before I went there, I, I was a thinker before I went there. And I was a thinker while well, I was there. You know, it was just a question of like learning how to manage and develop and maximize those things that I came, already came with. So for me, that's what someone like the Royal College does. It helps you manage your talents. It helps you, and enha- it, it, it's there to enhance what you come there with. If you had to thank, or you had to credit, if I had to credit an institution of uh, teaching me the things that I needed, it was way before I went to the Royal College. That would be going back to uh, Worthing. I didn't say my uh, introduction to at, uh, in my local uh, college when I did art at Crawley College before I went to Worthing. You know, because that I did like a basic thing where I did a little bit of graphics, a little bit of fashion, a little bit of, uh, uh, what was the third thing? Uh, ceramics, or some, something like, yeah. But it was that whole thing where you had the whole package, then you choose where you wanted to you know, veer off to, which is why I decided, okay, it was fashion. I went to Worthing. Worthing taught me how to really use a machine, how to sew. And then Maidenhead was an amazing, amazing place because it was, I don't think there was any program that was, I think it was second to, it was second to, to no other program in, 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 in England at the time. Because I thought it was such a com- comprehensive place to to learn your craft, it had everything we needed. It was small it was had like an incredible staff that were very nurturing the curriculum itself was it was a dream, even in the, in the graphics or the interior the 3D the other uh, disciplines, people were so engrossed in what they did it was it was almost like you know for me it was like the uh x-men school <laughs> you know <laughs> but then with our program where we had footwear amazing you know i just just loved that just took even though i didn't want to specialize in footwear but it was one of the most important things that made me go to maidenhead because they offered footwear because for me, I fantasized the idea of being able to do everything. And that was the perfect grounding to take me on to the Royal College, you know, because when I went to the Royal College, there's so much I knew.
0: I always remember when we moved to London and I'm guessing it was probably one of your first projects.
1: The Silhouette Project. Was it the
0: big blue shoe
1: dress? The Silhouette the silhouette Project.
0: Yeah, it was just like, wow, this is taking imagination and ideas and um evolving your ideas to a different level that i at at, at the time i i I must admit i totally did not understand but looking back at it now i was like wow
1: oh yeah it's like again that was such an interesting because the one thing i've always done and i still do that to this day when i design i try especially when i do personal stuff I try not to have a formula. And when I say I try not to have a formula, because I did it this way the last time and I know this way works, doesn't necessarily mean I'm gonna approach a new project in the same way. I approach a project by what the project dictates. The idea was creating like a new silhouette for a garment. And the brief was it could be as abstract as you want it to be or it could be as conventional as you need it to be. I had no idea what I was going to do. Started designing and working on it and gradually veered off to Marion footwear. For some reason, I was able to, I saw, I saw the body as a shoe. It just evolved, the design, the sketch just literally evolved from like being a dress to almost becoming a shoe. Once I had that silhouette that I was going for, now I've got to make it. I was was super excited about it. You gain this certain level of design maturity when you're in a place like that, almost instantly. Just the fact that just from being, being accepted there, there's a fearlessness. There are no parameters. And I think that was what was that's what was great about the Royal College, and that was what great what was great about that project. And it was like this like relentless pursuit to try to achieve this thing that I'd drawn, and, and I always remember carrying it because it ended up having this uh, the only way I could, the way I could create a structure I think was to use some kind of foam or something. I ended up using I can't remember what it was exactly. So I always remember being on the train at the bus. <laughs> When this thing that was bigger than me. (laughs) The most reassuring part of it was, one, that I had the the conviction to see it through. And two, the response to it was just mind-blowing. There was something very natural about it, but something very new and challenging. I thought that that was the sort of response I got from it, and it was a really great way to to announce yourself. There was an element, I think, of letting myself go for that project, which to this day I really appreciate the power of that.
0: That was a conscious decision at the time, or is this you're thinking about it in hindsight?
1: I, I'm, I'm, you know, in hindsight, you know, when I think about it, I feel it was just me becoming less structured, less sort of a structural designer. Let it be what it needs to be, what it needs to be. And they'll still, they'll, you know, my handwriting was still there because at the end of the day, the piece was very controlled. It did have what I would call my signature in terms of like, the design is one thing and that's my roadmap. That's what I want to achieve. That's where I want to get to versus design sketching a piece and then let the tech, let technique materials and other things dictate what it ends up being
0: yeah i think it, what you what you're saying there is kind of like uh, external factors kind of contribute to the constraints yeah when you were saying about how the idea for the dress uh, the body in, 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 in the shoe. It sounded like it, it almost emerged from the act of sketching.
1: Absolutely. Well, it's, it's, but it's, it's one of those things where one doesn't work without the other. Back then, illustration was, some, was, was in another place where poses were a little bit more exaggerated, even editorials and magazines. Within certain shoots, you could see a number of different silhouettes within certain shoots. You know, so it could be, you know, so maybe it was like a picture that I saw that maybe planted that seed subconsciously. The one conscious thing, I, the one conscious thought I did have with that project was the fact that I, it was about, it wasn't about convention. Now, I know no one's going to be wearing this like shoe dress. Probably no one's even going to buy it no one's going to want to wear it. You know, I didn't really do it for someone to, to wear. For me, it was creating a dress that was also going to be art. It was going to be almost like an installation. It was almost going to be a, uh, a piece on its own. It didn't necessarily have to have, it can have a body in it, which it did, but also did not require a body in the dress. So
0: what about um, a few minutes ago when you said something about how uh, there was less limits on design in England? And then I thought, but all your career has actually been outside of England.
1: <laughs> if you look at a lot of the creative places in the world, a lot of the design, design houses, and be it fashion, be it vehicle design, be it graphics, you know, just what for a man of level of, you know, like creative uh, design. There's one or two Brits in every single design house in America, in most places in the world, of any, you know, of any renown, even Germany, all these places. And the reason why is because of the way we trained, the way we think. We're not governed by any parameters as designers. It's both a cultural thing and it's something that you grew up with. Maybe it's down to the strength of Blue Peter. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, i mean maybe the blue peter that comes back to what you were doing as a as a seven or eight year you old know, making those dresses out of a piece of paper and you know making your selfridges on your um
1: absolutely but then but then having said that it goes back then you can flip that to get anything creative beat music why is it all the cool like the cool bands music comes from england you know it's, there's something, there's something in that line, there's something in the water, there's something there. Now, we're probably not the best at making money, you know, in terms of like companies, <laughs> you know. But, so maybe the two, maybe, the, <laughs> maybe there's a correlation between, you know, creativity and money. <laughs> maybe they both fight each other so hard that, you know, they don't, they don't coexist. Could also be the way we trained, you know. It's just probably that training versus the culture makes for makes for a creative brain you know that you don't accept you don't always accept the status quo you want to challenge you want to ask questions you want to create you want to invent you want to do something that hasn't been done before you want to challenge you know
0: and how how much of that kind of uh pushing if you like is um came from someone like john miles so i remember you know you've you thought really highly of him, didn't you?
1: Absolutely. But I think in a way it was, it was literally all the faculty and the faculty be, and even the, uh, the external ones that were the external people that were brought in for us to work with, you know, because we work with people like, you know, work with like Romeo Gili. Uh, we did a Carl Langfeld project. We worked with the uh, IWF uh, professors that would come in, visiting professors that would come in. And I think it was that, ability to make us uh, aware of our wings and then they teach us how to fly with them you come there with the tools they just teach you how to maximize the tools that you come with having someone that inspires you to want to be better be the best you can be you know, extract the best you can from yourself, you know. At that point, you were treated as an adult who was there because you absolutely had no other desire to be anywhere else but there. The one thing that, they, that no one ever needed to do with anyone at the Royal College, anyone, whatever discipline you do, no one needs to motivate you
0: how did you feel about the transition when you left the Royal college and then found yourself at Versace in Milan? It's a different environment, different culture, different country, different language, and maybe not the same freedom of expression.
1: So my first stint was in Venice. I think I was there for like two years. So this was my first paid design gig. It was a department, it's a department store. And I was given one of the lines that, you know, I was given my, a line to, you know, to, to work on, to develop, you know, which was like great. So it was almost like, starting from scratch. We used to get pictures. But like when I say pictures, I mean proper like photographs of every single runway look. Imagine for like younger kids, whoever's younger listening to this, like uh, Vogue.com, Style.com. It was that in a suitcase but with actually proper photographs. If I'm, if I'm correct, I think they used to pay something like 25,000 for, for, for those pictures. A lot of money. It was a lot of money. There's one question that I always get asked was like, why, do, why does everything look the same? And the reason why, because the sources <laughs> tend to all be the same. Like if Coin can get those books, then every single other house, every single other company also had a copy of those books. I think I graduated on a Friday. The Monday or the Tuesday had a meeting with Coin. Literally got a job on the Tuesday after I graduated.
0: How did that selection process work then?
1: They're looking for designers. So they come to meet people the college would sort of like suggest certain candidates for certain companies, you know. So they suggested about, you know, four or five of us. I was asked obviously if I'm interested, and then you know it's like yes, and they were interested in meeting me. So you know it's like met, and literally made the offer straight away. You know, it was like one of those like really interesting. And I think the one thing that the one thing that doesn't really, despite being the Royal College and not or wherever you go, you always have it in the back of your mind. I think when you do something creative. Is would I really get a job? (laughs) You know, so what a job, what an offer presents itself, and you sort of grab it, go into Italy to work for such a commercial company, and it was like an interesting outfit because, like most Italian outfits, they had it was uh, almost a totally vertical uh, operation. It's probably the best scenario for a young designer to be in there's almost that immediate gratification where you can see what you've designed. You don't have to wait. There's not a waiting period. You literally, you're sketching it. It's been cut. It's been made. You're fitting. It's just this like incredible experience, you know, because it's not all of a sudden I'm able to design, give as much information as you can to the pattern cutters and they go and interpret it with, you know, consult with them. They go and cut it. And it's done. And like three months prior to that, I was literally designing and then cutting and then sewing, re-sewing, and then sewing again. <laughs> the biggest transition when you start working is is editing. Creativity is also can also be a double-edged sword because it's it's infinite. Yeah. That's just my belief because another designer would say the strength of what they do and the strength and their strength as a designer is their ability to limit and edit versus I come from the doctrine of only stop when you need to stop. With a company like COIN, there's only so far you can take an idea. And it was like, what are these ideas that I knew? Oh my God, that's like, it can go so many places. And I still do this to this day. I have a work project. And from a work project, if I feel there's more mileage in that idea, I will, continue, I, I will continue to develop it just for my own satisfaction. And I have, like, books full of ideas and projects which I've done from that. But I did a project based on that. So you of like have, like, a week, two weeks where you're sort of, like, just designing. And I got a call. So I picked up the phone, and it was Buona sera, sono so-and-so, the officer, Signore Versace, and that's all I heard. And then they went into English and say, Mr. Versace, would like to meet you. Out of the blue. Out of the blue. But not so out of the blue because, again, go back to the Royal College. At the Royal College, you, get, you give them a few names of p- p- place that you want to work. So I think I had Versace was on top of my list. Yves Salomon was the second. So they were the ones that put them in contact with me. And they just called and said, you know, who'd like to meet you next week. I put the phone down and obviously everyone in the office, like we all got into everyone's business, you know, everyone was so supportive and so happy. And like people literally just making like calling and making train arrangements for me and stuff, you know, you know, so it's like I went, I went to, uh, Milan the next week and that project that I'd been working on was one of the projects that I I, I, I took I took that project with me and he loved that project look he owns a company he's like you know met me like me there and then offered me a job and you know literally that same day I came back had to put in my resignation wrap up life there the origins of that gig came from the recommendation from the Royal College
0: and and the fact that you didn't stop exploring the idea and the project that you're working on as well, kind of thing.
1: That's just, it's just a habit. That's just what I do. To the, like to this day,
0: continually exploring the the design process and the creative process, isn't it?
1: It does not end. There's certain things you can never stop exploring. You could just go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. You know, if there's if there's need for it.
0: I can imagine it being a very different environment. Versace to to coin,
1: totally. It was a different world, you know, because we worked in his house, in the middle floor of his house, of his uh, and his house being his palace. What I've realized with most Italian companies, just from doing business with, you know, there's very much this family atmosphere in every single Italian company I've been in. You know, there's a familiarity with you know people that work together. There was this one thing, you know. For instance, like uh, Mr. Versace's housekeeper, she was this Ethiopian lady. And again, it's like you know one of these things where in Italy you sort of like become more uh, appreciative of like seeing of like seeing another black person, <laughs> you know. But she was this most lovely, lovely. I can't actually remember her name. But so she speaks. She was his housekeeper, and she also brought in every morning tea and biscuits and stuff to, like, each single designer. Also, Mr. Fizashi had a way... He had a, he was, a, he was a very, very personable person because I worked directly with him. Worked with him and Antonio. Mr. Fizashi would come in, like, every morning, work with each, every one of us for, like... Sit with, like, for 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. He'd sit, he'd come, you'd just pull a chair, sit in your desk and uh, tell me, okay, today I want you to work on X and X and X. I'm like subsequent design roles that I have there was he had the big picture and you contributed to the big picture based on what he wanted you to contribute to. So I do, for lack of a better description, other than knitwear, print and textiles, I do everything. And that was very apparent. That was apparent in the body of work that he saw from me, you know, which made me more of an all, a, a very rounded, designer you know which is what he always required he required someone if he wanted shoes today you should be able to sketch a pair of shoes design shoes for him if he comes to you tomorrow he wants just skirts you should be able to do skirts he did not work in the sense that you do accessories and you do clothing it was whatever he thought of that night before he'd come up and say you know say like today i want uh, you to do a bag, for, I remember once he came to my desk, he wanted me to do a bag for Diana for, she endorsed one of his books that he wrote. He uh, came up to me one day and said, you know, what wanted some bags, you know, like, Sketcher, a come a bag. So he, he he brought a bag over, that was like one of the bags that he'd already done. So he'd, he'd basically like just work with him, do a little, little doodle, like, then he just like design around that little doodle that he did.
0: How many designers were on that team then?
1: Four, four of us, I believe. There was four of us, Yeah. And then he had like that, but then he had like, there was another uh, three who did uh, uh, Artillier, Versace. One interesting thing working there was I think the one thing that was a must was the illustration because every every season, he I can't remember the name of the guy, but a guy came in and did Drawings of uh whatever the girl that he liked that season we had we had the stand we had Naomi we had Naomi head, we had Kate we had I think Helena you know what I mean we had all the all, like the heads of the girls like this guy would come and like sketch them. we had a few uh we had about five or six different like body poses that we used but then you can choose whichever head you you needed to use. But it was like based on the girls that he liked. So basically the funny thing, even though you had like four or five people doing the sketches, when everything was on the board, it looked like it was done by the same person. So it was like always beautiful when you saw a collection, which is what you don't get in any houses now because people, it's so, this just so little time that people don't really illustrate. And when I say illustrate, I mean full illustration where you, you know what fabric you know what color were you illustrating you do the pr- whatever the print is it's like literally like almost like a mini prototype it's that detailed and that concise that's how every single design was approached in that way if you went in that studio and saw things on the wall it made you believe in how beautiful design is
0: it's, it's quite interesting what you were saying there about uh you know the the illustrator with the models cuz it that really reinforces his association with supermodels cuz cuz he was one of the main uh instigators of that feeling um of supermodelness continued backstage and it, it, it wasn't just a front of house thing it wasn't just a catwalk thing
1: totally it was it was the full, full package because it was like i always describe a great like illustration as it's poor man's prototype because you you're selling your vision you're selling what you see you're selling your mind you want it to be as alluring as desirable as the actual finished product is and you want the finished product probably even to be better but you want it to have full impact you know which is why i i'm a true 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 believer of illustration it's such an integral part of design you know because i feel you should have the same amount of love for the illustration as you do for the finished product one doesn't come without the other in my in my world anyway
0: a little while ago you mentioned the approach that you would take working with mr versace Working very much within his guidelines to an extent, um, and you wouldn't necessarily like bring in left field ideas into his world. I get the feeling from my memory of the time when you then moved to Lueve that your approach towards that kind of changed. You're very much trying to change things and trying to really move Lueve on.
1: Abs- absolutely. And going back to the Versace, I think it's kind of important. The time I worked for him was, you know, very, was pretty much close to when he was untimely, you know, and cruelly taken, you know, from us. But it was, he'd recovered from a long absence when he hired me. So he was literally reintroducing himself, you know, so he was also buzzed, you know, so he had like a lot of ideas of where he wanted to take the product, where he wanted to take his brand, where he wanted to take his, you know, his voice. He wanted his voice to be heard. So when you are at proximity to such greatness, you are in awe and you sort of like, have your, lear- you have your, you have your learning hat on all the time, you know, because it's like, he, is very, he was very clear about his vision. He was very clear about what he wanted, which meant, you know that, you know, left field ideas don't necessarily work you know so it wasn't really the it wasn't really the platform for left field ideas whereas going to the following gig was was Lueve that was a completely different uh, experience because Lu was an interesting experience because I initially was hired at Lueve to do accessories not clothing I liked what they do and I knew and they, their history was like ridiculous because they had, they've had they had people like a Carl Lagerfeld had worked for them, Giorgio Money had worked for them. Louis in truth, was a second generation revival of houses because initially, like, Mark Jacobs was at Louis Vuitton. And I see, so obviously, coming off the back of the uh, Kennedy wedding dress. I was organizing the shoes with, uh, I was just basically being a lab out and just bossing people about. But in a nice way, because I think I'm, you know, I'm I'm not like a, I'm not like a jerk, you know. I didn't realize that I was being watched, but Narciso was observing all of this, being like very, very decisive. And the fact that I was like speaking, I was like communicating to people who spoke no English. (laughs) And I spoke no Spanish. And I think over dinner, and he literally just said it, just literally like a joke to Robert. So I'm going to steal Arnold from you, and that's how I became his assistant, just like, just literally like that.
0: When you were saying about you were organizing everyone and making, wanting everything quite, quite specific and wanting, get everything in, in in its right place. It just made me think of what you were saying about your shoes, in Malawi, right when you were a little kid and wanting things to be just so,
1: where they should be, right? Yeah, and you know, so. I was uh, in my element again, because I was back to doing clothing, but this time I was back to doing clothing and accessories. So in,
0: in, a, in a design sense, and a creativity sense, with Versace, with is very much his, um, his vision, but with Loewe, you've got a, a house with a lot of heritage, I remember at the time you were you were amazed at the, the the amount of archive in the building. And then you've also got the influence of, of Narciso coming in and with your ideas, how how did that all how did you get all that to kind of come together?
1: It was the first time I met someone who was more of a natural designer than I than even I I, I, I am. Narciso does not stop sketching. A lot of the ideas come from, like, napkins, tablecloths. Like, literally, we literally are... He's literally always, like, ripping corners off tablecloths and stuff. You know, when we're in restaurants, sketching on doilies, on, you name it, uh, beer mats. He drops that pen, and the pen does not leave the piece of paper until he's done with that sketch. And that was when we worked with faxes, so... It's a question of like, we're faxing ideas back What I'm faxing it to him in Riccione where he was at IFA or faxing it to him in New York or I'm working with him in New York or meeting him in IFA or working in Madrid. You know, so you constantly like just exchange ideas. We'll take a couple of trips and we'll go to uh, lots of these rented resources. So either go to Angels in London or uh, Kenny Valenti in New York or uh, Bob Mallet and then get samples you know and basically that was uh I think the most I did ones I did like a like a 15,000 these aren't even like you don't own them you rent them you know you're working from like these these vintage pieces where you get like ideas from so you have like you know like starting points from them and then whatever research you're doing based on you know where you want to take the collection so you have all these like images and things that you can work that you can design from so that was really my first introduction of working in that manner whereas the place like Versace didn't work with vintage pieces you didn't work with you know like uh, Mr. Versace did had like you know little things that would influence him but we didn't necessarily get those things unless we needed it.
0: Was that an influence from Narciso or a a process that was already in place at Louieva?
1: No, that was, that, that, that was, that, that was not the way they, they could not understand. They could not just, uh, first of all, it was, it was a very hard place in terms of like, where everyone was like very willing to learn. Everyone's very willing to, uh, to learn a new way to evolve the, pro- the, the product. But also there was a lot of resistance because they're very set in their ways, you know, and it's kind of hard to change the culture of a 170 year old company. You know, they understood tradition. He understood uh, heritage, you know. So it was about hugely experienced. They had, a, they had, they had, they had a leather guy. This guy called Ignacio Prado, who was like a leather genius, knew everything about leather. He was a leather technician. They had an artillery a leather, a bag artillery So basically, I can sketch a bag. I'd drive to the factory, go to the artillery of the bags, go through the design, and literally, the morning after. I'll have a bag on my desk the prototype ready for me. It was that impressive and when it came to their bags it was sublime. The technical knowledge of the uh the people that made bags and we're talking about these are people who'd been there since they were like six worked for that company since they were 16 making bags for them and some of these people like in their 60s. Yeah,
0: true craftsmanship.
1: Oh my god, it was ridiculous. Re- Ridiculous, you know, the level of expertise that they had, but they just did not have design. The fashion forward studio, it makes the traditional bag designers uneasy, you know. So it took a while to get them on board, get them on side, you know. But I think once it was done, they realised that it's definitely the way forward.
0: So you you really had had to. Deal with the uh, like the break from the past. Well not the break from the past, but like the the reinvigoration of the past as as a modern a modern version.
1: These people were very, very comfortable in their jobs before we arrived. As soon as we arrived, we are we injected something in the, into the equation that they could not understand that you know so obviously you don't understand something you're threatened by it
0: yeah the, the fear of the unknown and the fear of change
1: absolutely there was a point where we were sort of the enemy while no one thwarted our efforts you know there was resistance in certain areas certain parts
0: a challenging transition shall we say
1: absolutely
0: which i, I guess the immense change that louis is perceived to be now Right kind of started back then when, when you and Narciso were, were really instigating those those difficult struggles of, of breaking from the past kind of thing.
1: Our team put in the groundwork. Like no there's no question about that, we put in the groundwork. The one thing that we did have, we had the absolute support, you know, unequivocal support of like Mr Carcel. He was like there for us, he wanted us to succeed.
0: Mr Carcel is
1: Yves Carcel, he was the head of, uh, he literally is the head of LVMH. He was, he was the head of, he's, he's passed now, but, you know, he was the head of LVMH. So he controlled Dior, Rutil, all of them. He was the one that, that was responsible for hiring all the, uh, all these companies that that you see now under the LVMH umbrella. Mr. Carcel was was responsible for creating all of that.
0: You moved to New York after the way there, right?
1: Uh, yes, for uh, John Varvatos.
0: So that that must have been a sea change. You've gone from Versace, which is which is a very uh, you know Mr. Versace's ingredients, his vision, to a, a mix of heritage and newness, uh, modernity being kind of uh, wrestled together almost. And then to John Vavetos, which is a very new brand with a very American uh, feeling and energy. That must have been quite a different environment for your work in comparison to to Loewe in comparison to Versace.
1: Way, way more different than it was. It was a pretty dramatic change in every single uh, regard because, again, John had a... uh, a short-lived women's collection, which I was supposed to work on that collection with, uh, some of that's turned out to be, you know, again, gonna be like a lifelong friend. then Michelle comes like bursting into the office, like, have you heard, have you heard, have you heard? heard?" I'm like, "Uh, um, what? A little while later, I think like 15, 20 minutes later, John comes in and he's like, okay, you know, we had a little bit of development, we, Cancel the women's line. We think you'd be great doing menswear anyway. That's how I ended up being at John Varvatos doing menswear—an
0: unexpected switch.
1: But one thing that was like a big stumbling block was my illustrations were so feminine, (laughs) and it got to the point where the only way I could make my my illustrations masculine, I had to always give them beards. In terms of design process, it was very similar to working with Narciso, I must say. It's, and ironically, Narciso and, you know, like John, they both worked for uh, for Calvin. His approach to design is very much the way they approach design in America in general. You know, so in terms of that that transition wasn't transition to the way John worked wasn't very difficult, it was very similar to how Narciso worked.
0: And and that influenced how you uh, how you approach design as well, or uh, or just just in terms of how you interacted with John and I.
1: I, I think it, it does change. It does influence the way you design. I think I introduced more new things at John Vavatos than I did at Loewe in a really funny way, because Loewe, I think. We were change agents. So going to John Barbados, you take that mental, that change agent mentality. The doctrine there and the philosophy there was very much versions off, as opposed to, you know, hey, let's do something new, let's create something, you know. So because I wasn't tradition like a menswear designer, I was given the, I had the latitude. My role in a way was almost like I had like a kind of like designer at large role. So I'd sit with them and go through things that I've been thinking of, and would just put you know put things, throw things out there. You know, so he'll have like a slew of like new ideas that when he worked with the other design team, sometimes he'll like inject things that I've spoke with him about, and you know, so so those that that's how it kind of worked initially. After a while, I think he just got like kind of like bored with that way of you know like working and. Also, I was kind of like a little bit bored because I felt you can get better results. Me, like, give me my collection or let me have one thing that I'm working on and I can just like run with it or not run with it, you know. So veering off towards Star USA, which had a little bit of a younger vibe and it was a little bit more, I think it was a little bit more London. With menswear, I got to realize that, you know, because like most womenswear designers you want, there's a spectacle element to what we do. With menswear it's a little it's incremental if i got on a basic jacket i was able to get like a great pocket on it Boom. result it's very small it's very minor but it's huge as well it's almost reinventing the wheel a
0: big difference to women's wear
1: absolutely you know so it was definitely like sl- slower 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 pace
0: and were you missing women's wear quite a lot at that time then
1: Certain seasons you miss it more than others, you know. But yeah, generally, after a while, you know, that desire never goes away, you know, it's always in the back of your mind, it's always what you desire. And then eventually, you know, eventually that time came where it was like, okay, you know, I've done this and it's great, you know, to have this experience, but this really wasn't really what I wanted, this wasn't what I signed up for, and it's you know, I've gotta go find something else that's a little bit more. Yeah, something more. You know what? What I what I wanted. I wanted to do women's wear. You know, I wanted that challenge. I wanted that uh, vehicle to express myself. You know, as opposed to being a men's wear, I felt I could only express myself so much.
0: Out of all the different companies that you've worked for, and all the different people you've worked with, what would you say has been the biggest um, influence or inspiration inspiration maybe it's more influenced than inspiration on on your ongoing career
1: My season was you know it was like the best place i could have been at the time the best person to have learned you know learn a lot from but also the one designer who but i that's it's more of a like a personal favorite of mine in terms of like the aesthetic of this designer that I work with was, I think, Francisco Costa, like Calvin. I think he was, even like, you know, and I didn't work, I worked semi-directly indirectly with him because obviously I did, uh, I was in charge of accessories for the for collection, but I loved when I worked with him and I loved his process. I loved how he designed. I love his aesthetic and his you know his stuff granted did not uh, did not make money but when has that ever affected beauty
0: i think we've talked a lot and there's loads of stuff there there's, there's loads of amazing uh, s- stories amazing all right dude thank you very much well, my
1: pleasure mr anytime
0: And thank you for listening. You can find out more at anthonystoker.com Until next time.